Good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys. Yes, woot woot in the back, Stephanie. Uh, if you're not able to make it to the prayer gathering on May 5th, as Ben said, you know, not everyone has a, a schedule that's flexible that allows you to, to be at Normandy Christian Church on Thursday at 7 a.m. Would you please pray for that gathering if you can't make it? I've been really encouraged by what God is doing and bringing people together in, in fresh new ways of, of unity and particularly gathering and rallying around prayer. So I'm really excited about that. Pray that we would be unified, that God would give clarity and wisdom to the pastors and the faith leaders that are there, that we might get some ideas on how could we show our community in a kind of a collective way that we care and that we want to serve. Amen? All right. Is this your phone, Ben? Okay. (laughs) Morning, Brian. Good to see you. All right, if you haven't already, let me invite you to open your Bible to the passage Ben just read, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. It is hard to believe we're halfway done with Colossians. It feels like we just started. I guess that's what it's like getting older, maybe. <laughs> Didn't we just start this book? As you're flipping your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 17, th- think with me on this question What do you seek? What, when you wake up in the morning, is the first thought that comes to mind? What occupies your thought life? What would you guys say? Jesus, amen. (laughs) I've found in in pastoral experience, in my own experience, in working with others and praying with others and and doing uh, pastoral care and counseling, that you are controlled by what you seek. So ultimately, what you you seek is what will control you. If you seek utmost approval from others, you will be controlled by your perceived, your perception of if you're approved or not. If you seek money, you will be controlled by money. You'll, feel, you'll be feeling good when you have the money that you want, I guess, but what is enough? You'll, there's always money to seek. There, I guess you could always be controlled by money. If you seek feeling good, you're going to be controlled by doing things that make you feel good. You'll make decisions by, will this make me feel good? If not, I'm not going to do it. And that is so subjective. And a lot of times, right, what feels good might be, I'm going to eat three Costco cakes. (laughs) And we know, yeah. I haven't done that, but I have had a whole Costco pizza. Yes. Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, right, there's, there's these teachers that have been saying, you know, you have to have kind of strict observance to these rules and obligations and regulations. And Paul says, chapter three, verse one, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, this if is kind of a a new section in Colossians. The first couple chapters, Paul has been talking about what Christ has done, and he's kind of refuting uh, the false teaching that the Colossians have been experiencing. So you can believe we've been in Colossians six weeks. So the past six weeks, we've been studying through Colossians, and, and, and Paul wrote this letter to Colossians. He hadn't 
He hadn't planted this church. He might not even been to this church, but he heard from this guy named Epaphras that there was, there was teachers and teachings that were pressuring the Colossians to move on from the gospel. They were saying things like, Paul, what he said was good, but you have to also observe these festivals. You have to observe this certain Sabbath day. You have to follow these food regulations. If, if you want to really be spiritual, if you want to really have protection, you have to worship angels or worship alongside angels. You have to kind of have severe beating to your body. You want to have some of experience with the visionary realms. You have to do these things. That was kind of the appeal. And Paul has been refuting that. He's, he first writes and kind of praises God. He thanks God for their faith. And he prays. He thanks God for them, and he prays for them, reminding the Colossians about who Jesus is and what he has done. This is what he prays in, in verse 9 of chapter 1. He, has, he wrote this to the Colossians. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul has written this letter that they might be, live a life that's pleasing to God that they may bear fruit in God. And this comes through, as he says, growing in the knowledge of our Lord and knowledge of the will of God. Paul wants the Colossians to understand and know Jesus more, really. He wants them to be filled with wisdom so that their life might be worthy of the Lord. Their life might be pleasing to him. And what they do, it pleases Jesus. It's in line their life is in line with the life that Jesus lived. That's what, that's what Paul wants. And he reminds them that these Colossians, they've been delivered from the domain of darkness. They've already been transferred into the kingdom of, of Jesus. And this Jesus is the creator of all things. He's preeminent as he has written. He is the firstborn. He, all things were made through this Jesus. All things are made for this Jesus. He, Jesus holds all things together. He's the source and the authority. So that was chapter one. Paul writes in chapter two that he continues writing in this letter and he, he calls them, hey, let no one deceive you. Don't be, don't be taken captive by things that sound reasonable, empty deceit, things that are based on human tradition, things that are based in this world, in this corrupted order. They're not based in the kingdom. He's told them, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink, in regard to the matter of, of festival or new moon or to a Sabbath day. He writes this in Colossians 3.17. These are the shadow the substance belongs to Christ. So don't, don't worship, don't get caught up in this shadow. Christ is the substance. Christ are the realities to which these point. And worshiping on a certain day doesn't make you more spiritual. Abstaining from certain foods doesn't make you more spiritual. In fact, Paul writes that if you take pride in these things, the worship of angels, it, he, he talks about these guys are claiming they have access to this visionary realm, which anyone ever says that to you, it's just a load of, yeah, don't, don't do that. He says, you'll be, if, you, if you follow these guys, they're claiming to have these visions and this deep spiritual uh, experiences, they're actually puffed up in their own pride. They, they are promoting a self-made, a false religion. They are promoting false humility. It has no value in curbing the self-indulgence. It has no value in stopping your self-centeredness. These rules from the outside teachers, they might seem wise, Right? People might look spiritual as they do these things. They fast for a really long time. They, they have kind of this pious self-denial. They're very disciplined. But Paul says they have no help. They provide no help in conquering your own evil desires. They're worthless. 
And he continues and said, following Jesus doesn't mean that you just get a different set of rules. That's not what following Jesus means. Rules alone don't have the power to get at the root of your problem. The rules alone don't have the, the power to get at the root of your evil as Jesus taught. Our problems are not primarily circumstantial. They're not external, they're internal. That's where the evil resides, in the heart. And the good news that Paul is writing throughout other letters and in Colossians, the gospel is that Jesus not only saves you, not just dies for your sins, not just secures your fate so that you join in his life after death, but you have been joined into the very life of Jesus now. You've been united with him. And Jesus offers a change and a transformation of your heart that happens now in the present. You don't have to wait for it. And this law-based religions, they tend to produce followers that, that have a great self of arrogance or they are beaten down and condemned with the rules that they can't themselves follow. You guys relate to this? I have been in both camps. I have felt that because I followed the rules so well, it created the self of self-righteousness and I looked down upon others and I was prideful and puffed up in my performance. Yet when I didn't follow the rules, I was guilt-ridden and could not escape the shame and fearful. And the gospel is your, your merit, your worth is not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on what Jesus has done. And you receive this worth, you receive this identity simply by faith. And the apostle Paul is arguing that instead of rules, instead of obligations, instead of laws, followers of Jesus have Jesus's very power with them. The power of the resurrected Jesus, the risen power of Jesus is with them. And the very lives of Jesus' followers have been joined to the resurrection of Jesus. That is amazing news, is it not? We don't just get new rules. We get the very power and life of Jesus with us. So Paul has written, our very life through faith has been joined to Jesus, his resurrected life. Therefore, Jesus is making this new humanity. That's what he's done. And this is what Paul is saying now as we move into chapter three, based on what, what Jesus has done, now Paul is essentially shifting gears a little bit to say, you Colossians, based on what Jesus has done, be who you are. Live out of the identity that Jesus has purchased and accomplished for you. This is where we're going in, in chapter three. The rest of the letter, starting in chapter three, Paul is explaining how being united to Jesus, how that practically outworks in your life. How does that affect the way that you live? How does that affect the way that you relate to one another? How does that affect the way that marriages operate? How does it affect the way that we speak and pray? This is where we're going in the rest of Colossians. In other words, Paul is saying, because of what Jesus has done and will do, followers of Jesus continually seek to align their very life with what he's done. This is what R.C. Sproul, how he comments on Colossians 3. Paul's instructions for behavior come only after his description of the redemption God has richly bestowed on his people. Obedience is a response of gratitude to God's favor already bestowed and not a means of gaining it. Right? That's important to remember as we get into this chapter of Colossians that he's writing about behavior, how we should act, how we should treat one another, that we don't lose sight of what he's written the first two chapters. You guys with me? Okay, let's look at verse one, chapter three. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if you have been joined to Jesus, the Messiah, if you too have come to share in the resurrection of Jesus, if you've been raised with him, seek the things of above. Seek where he is. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear this phrase? What does it mean to seek the things that are above? Right? Think about this, maybe the spiritual realm. Maybe, does this mean think about heaven? I was having a conversation with some of you earlier and they were, they were reading ahead of, of Colossians and they were saying, I, I came to this part and it says, set your minds on things that are above. What, it, what is thinking about heaven have anything to do with how I live now? So think about heaven. Think about your home in the sky. Think about heavenly throne in the clouds. Think about babies and you know, little cherubs. What does this mean? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Well, being seated at the right hand of God is a place of authority and rule. This is what, this is what Paul is talking about. Bible scholar and teacher Tim Mackey says this. Now, Paul doesn't mean here, think about how one day you will leave earth and go to heaven. It's not what he has in mind. Rather, the heavens are the transcendent place from which Jesus rules now over all creation. From there, he will one day return to transform all things. Or as Paul says, when the Messiah who is your life is revealed, you too will be revealed with him in glory. So what is thinking about the above? Thinking about that transcendent place from which Jesus rules now over all creation. So in other words, what Paul is saying, instead of focusing on man-made rules and obligations, set your sights on Jesus, his rule. Pursue a deeper knowledge of him and what it means to belong to him, what it means to submit your life to his lordship and to his leadership, to have the identity that he's given you rule and operate and function in your life. Think about what it means to live under the kindly rule of Jesus, what it means to live in accordance with his kingdom. That's what Paul is saying here. Followers of Jesus are to set their sights on Jesus. The coming of Jesus a new age has dawned, a new kingdom has come. And the good news of Jesus is not so much that one day you will die and go up to heaven, but that heaven has come down to earth. That the earth and, and all that's in the earth will be remade and restored and redeemed. There will be new, a new creation that Jesus is, is making. And one day he's promised to do this. There will be renewed earth and the work has started in Jesus and it will finish in Jesus. And Paul is saying, think about where Christ is seated. It's similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. But, for, but what is it? Seek first the kingdom. It's a similar idea and thought that Jesus has said that Paul is talking about here. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. And so this new age that Jesus has brought about, this new kingdom, the followers of Jesus are already in it. They're hidden in, in Jesus. They belong there. They already have it. And he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Notice it's all on the if. If you've been raised, all this is happening. You've placed your faith in Jesus. You will appear with him in glory. When Christ your life appears, you will appear with him too. 
In other words, your new identity, your new citizenship, your new belonging, your new security, it's already been accomplished. There's no doubt about it. So Christians, we don't have to toil and strive for this. We don't have to earn the status as a citizen in the kingdom. Therefore, growth is about becoming who you are. It's a counter-cultural, counter-intuitive idea because so much of our society is based on performance. The gospel is you become who you are. One pastor said, they have entered the new age and belonging there by right, they don't have to struggle to attain the status of membership in God's people. They already have it. They must now simply allow its life to be worked out in them. Yesterday, Addison's tooth fell out. It was her very first tooth. And she really wanted the tooth to come out because there was a tooth, one of her adult teeth was growing behind it. It was kind of pushing it up. And yesterday, Avery, they were playing this pillow fight and they, we had these outdoor pillows and Avery just comes up and smacks Addison in the face and the tooth loosens up. And I, I wiggle it and then she eventually wiggles it out. And it was so funny to see her, you might imagine getting smacked in the, in the face by a pillow when her sister, that you get pretty upset. But she was like, oh, Avery, thank you so much. Thank you that you hit me in the face. And now this tooth is loose. It was so funny. But I was thinking about that, that image of there's this old, it's kind of gross looking now. And it's kind of, kind of been disconnected tooth. And it's, and it's kind of wiggling there. Yes, sorry. Sorry, guys. Stephanie doesn't like teeth. But as it was sitting there in this old tooth, and yet the new was coming through, it just gave me a picture of, of what I think Paul is talking about here. There is this new life, this new kingdom, this new, this new thing that is breaking through, that the old has been broken off, it's been removed, and this new is growing and, and coming to light. And of course, right, there's, you can't tease an illustration all the way because I'm not saying that our life in Christ is like a new tooth. But the image there was, it was profound to me. This is what Paul is talking about. Christians don't have to struggle to abstain status and membership in God's people. They already have it. They allow its life to be worked out in them. This is what N.T. Wright says about this. The command to aspire to the things of heaven is a command to meditate and dwell upon Christ's sort of life and on the fact that he is now enthroned as the Lord of the world. The Bible does not say very much about heaven, but its central feature is clear. It is the place where the crucified Christ already reigns, where his people already have full rights of citizenship, to concentrate the mind on the character of Jesus Christ, on the unique blend of love and strength revealed in the gospel is, I love how he says this, it is to begin on earth to reflect the very life of heaven. That's what Paul is talking about here. Think about things that are above. Set your mind on what is above where Christ is. So Paul is calling the Colossians to live in the present as the new kind of humanity that they already are in Jesus. So he says in verse five, Put to death what is earthly in you. And he's talking here, spiritual realm, the earthly would be, you know, kind of the, the fleshly, the sinful, what is not good compared to the spiritual. And he's going to use this image of putting to death and putting on. This is put to death what's earthly, and he's going to say to put on the character of Christ. So he says, uh, the, the sin that remains in your life, the, the, the sin that affects your present behavior, put that to death so that it aligns with your true self who you really are in Christ. Put to death what is earthly in you, what belongs to the former age. Put into practice what you already have become. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God. That's what he's saying. And I appreciate how the New American Standard Bible translated verse five. It says it like this. Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead. 
Like they already are dead, treat them as dead. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The focus of these is on self. It's self-serving. Paul says there it's idolatry. These things take the place of God in regards to your devotion and your worship and your obedience. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He says this, until you once walked in these. This, this was who you were. You were living in these. You once walked in these, but, but now put them away. That's not who you are anymore. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Put away anger. Do we minimize our, our fits of anger? Rage, wrath, malice, desire to cause pain, slander, abusive words falsely spoken that damage a person's reputation, obscene talk, other translations might say abhorrent to virtue, or sorry, that's the definition, abhorrent to virtue. I like that, how that was defined. Obscene, abhorrent to virtue. Some translations use the word dirty, filthy language. Put this stuff away. And notice, I didn't see an asterisk, maybe you have one, I didn't see an asterisk in my Bible that says, except when you're venting, then you can do these things. <laughs> right, we can excuse ourselves, can't we? Except if you're talking with a close friend, then you can slander. It says, verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What's cool about this verse, these verses, in the, in the original language, the verb tense that used, that's used for put off and put on, it's, it's the verb tense that's used in the sense that it's already taken place. That's already happened. But put on the new self or, or being renewed, that phrase being renewed in verse 10 is in the present tense. So the put off and the put on, it's, that's kind of already taken place. But Paul says being renewed, it's in the present tense. So it, it invokes this. It's, this is a continual process. This is a, a change that is progressive. It's an ongoing activity. And followers of Jesus are, are to progressively have their behavior aligned with their identity, with who they are in Christ. They're to be more and more characterized by Jesus's very love and forgiveness and, and mercy. And this new humanity, as Paul writes, it, it goes, beyond, goes beyond and above how we might define ourselves. It goes above and beyond that, that what ultimately defines you is not your, your ethnicity or your nationality. What ultimately defines you is, is not whether you're circumcised or not. It's not whether you, what condition you might be in, a slave or free. It's not if you're barbaric. I don't know who would, who would identify as that now. I'm not sure. He's saying what, what really matters is Christ. Jesus is what matters. Christ is all and in all. And Jesus is the Messiah of all kinds of people. That's what Paul is writing here. Not a particular way, a particular tradition, a particular sect. It's Christ. And he continues, not only by describing what you put off, but now what does this new humanity look like? So, Put away that anger and wrath and slander and malice and obscene talk and put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Firstly, he writes, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive 
Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Like a lot of stuff right in there. He's just thrown in. Like compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, thankfulness. Wow, I wish I was doing all those super well, right? I used to, before uh, I was full-time paid pastor, I, I used to work at Les Schwab Tire Center. And I would throw on tires and, and do brakes every once in a while and, and run around and hoot and holler and try to get people's cars in and out of the bays as quick as possible, fix flat tires, you know. But at Les Schwab, well, every morning you'd get there and there'd be in your locker, uh, well, hopefully if it was, the laundry was done, there'd be a clean uniform. And as you put on the Les Schwab uniform, there was a certain reputation, a certain way that you were to behave when you put on the Les Schwab uniform. You were no longer kind of like, maybe you were a jerk or you were inconsiderate, you know, in, in your civilian wear. But you wear that Les Schwab uniform. You had to act a certain way or else it cost you your job. There was a certain culture and way that customers were to be treated. You're supposed to run out to the cars. I don't know how it, I don't know how it is anymore. When I was working there, Back in the day, <laughs> when I was working there, you had to run out to the cars. You had to greet customers with a smile. You had to engage with them and let them know that you cared about them, that you wanted their best intention. Or you tried to try to keep your uniform clean so that you looked professional and, uh, you know, not grimy. And I don't want to touch that guy. You were supposed to shake their hand. And Paul is using an illustration that's similar to this. You you have put on. The, the character, the clothing of Christ, so that the way that you behave and act and live is to reflect the very character of Christ. You have a name to represent. So live and, and operate as if you are representative of Christ. Put on this very character. Now again, that illustration breaks down because you could take off your Les Schwab uniform and go home and act like a total jerk, right? But we don't take off our uniform. It's put on, and, and the, the uniform of Christ, is, is, it's there. You never take it off. That's the identity you've been given. And what does this character look like? Paul lets out some specifics. It says, compassionate hearts. And even though it says the word hearts there in, in our ESV, the, the literal word is, you'll laugh at this, Stephanie, as we talk about the Greek salad. Splanka. It means bowels. <laughs> It means have a deep feeling. When they would talk about like a deep feeling, it was in their gut. That's what the Greeks thought about it. So bowels, right? It's a deep feeling within. Compassion is a deep awareness and sympathy for the suffering of others. So if there's people that are suffering around you, you're aware of that. And people know that you care about them. If there was a relationship of care, you are emotionally available. You're caring for those who are hurt. This is what compassionate hearts demonstrates. Kindness. It means the quality of being warm-hearted and considerate. It means being uh, ready to do good. You treat others not how they have already treated you, but, but how God has treated you. It's the kindness. In other words, Christian kindness is not a kind of kindness that, that goes how you might see kindness around us, where it says, oh, I'll, I'll be nice to you if you'll be nice to me. But if you cross me, if you, if you say something that's not nice to me, I'm going to be not nice to you. That's just how it works. And there can always be a sense in which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind to you simply so that you'll be kind to me, right? You guys know what I mean. This is not what Paul's talking about. Christian kindness is not the kind of kindness that says I'm nice to you simply because you're nice to me. 
or I'm, I'm considerate, I'm warm-hearted because of what you have done for me. This is why I think when you step foot into a church sanctuary or to a building, you come into a, a church community, there should be a kind of kindness that's not marked by, I'm treating you because we have a better relationship, I'm going to be warmer towards you and kind of cold to those who I don't know. But there's a kind of kindness that comes because of the way God has been kind to us. We show that kindness to others. So you want to be grumpy and walk in this sanctuary? That's fine. I'm going to love you. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to give you a smile. I'm going to say good morning to you. You, you might not even look at me and acknowledge me. doesn't matter. I'm going to be kind to you. That's, what, that's the kind of kindness that Christ has, that he's called me to do. You don't even acknowledge me. You don't say hi. I'm going to warmly greet you. That's just one application. I think how we can do that. But he says, set your sights on Jesus and welcome. Treat others with kindness. Reflect the kindness of the kingdom of Jesus. He says humility. Humility is the disposition, the disposition of valuing and assessing yourself appropriately. So you can think about humility as knowing your place. You're not above others. You're, you're in line with them, but you're underneath the lordship and the rule of Jesus. So you're like, all oh, other people are so much better than me. That's not very humble. That's a false sense of humility. Or, you know, I'm so much better than others and you're forgetting. Eh, Jesus is above you, my man. Humble yourself. Get in line. Humility looks like valuing others above yourself. It, humility is a, is a posture of servanthood, of lowliness. That's what he's talking about here. Meekness. How would you define meekness? Gentleness. The only thing about meekness is gentleness. Your demeanor is not harsh. You're not coercive. You're not forceful. You are gentle in the way that you seek to encourage. So I hope and pray that the very way even that I, that I preach, that we call forth change, that, I, that we look at the scripture and say, I, let's, let's be what God has called us to be. That even the way that that is gone about should be done in a gentle way. If you, if, if you see otherwise in me, I would love for you to, to confront me on that. I want to be gentle and, and meek and humble in this way. Patient. How would you define patience? Long-suffering, that's the way to say it. Paul might have in mind here that patience is you have the, the destiny in mind. You have the end goal in mind. Your, your growth is progressive and continual. So you're going to be patient with your own mistakes and you're going to be patient with the mistakes of others because you know they're a work in progress. They have this destiny, this end goal. And, and we might be at different parts of the sanctification process. I might be someone who I'm not really angry. I, I'm, I'm meek. I'm gentle. Another person might be someone who is really angry they, they are a servant, and God is working at us in different ways, in different areas, so we can be patient with one another. How about this? Forgiving one another. The character of Christ that looks like bearing with one another. And then he says, cherry on top, or kind of, let me just throw it all in together. And above all, put on love. Love, the self-giving love, the self-sacrificial love, this is what binds the church together in perfect harmony. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This peace that Jesus has accomplished, this reconciliation between God and man, this reconciliation between fellow men, this is the kind of peace that dwells in your hearts. And the Colossians are not only to have 
all of these character traits put on. They're not only supposed to have the, the peace of God rule in their hearts. It says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love the way a guy named Douglas Moo wrote, wrote this. He says, the peace of Jesus rules where the message of Christ dwells. There's a correlation between 15 and 16. When the word of Jesus dwells, the peace of Christ rules. The church displays the harmony, the unity, the working together, the gratitude and thankfulness. When Paul says the word of Christ, it, he's probably referring here to the message about Christ, which would be the teachings of Jesus, the very words of Jesus that were passed down to oral tradition before they were kind of codified into the, the gospel stories that we have now. But certainly in our context, this, this means the scriptures, the gospel, the unified story of Jesus, let that dwell in your hearts. So certainly preaching is a, is a part of this, how we can apply this, right? We're, we're preaching, we're teaching, we're, we're praying that, that God would dwell, the word of God would dwell in our hearts. We're thinking about it, we're studying it, we're considering it, we're asking questions of it, we want to interact with it, we're correcting ourselves with it, right? This is what we do when we, hopefully, as we gather and we hear the word of God preached, this is what we're doing. But Paul's also saying, what, look what he says there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, in, in you, you all, richly. And then he says, admonishing one another in all wisdom. So there's a sense in which, yes, the word of God is taught. There's admonition that happens on a, on a Sunday morning. But there's also another sense in which every Colossian Christian, and, and in our context, every Christian, we have a responsibility to teach and to admonish to let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts. And, right, we not only sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs on Sunday, but Paul's saying throughout the week, encourage one another in this way. Correct the false teaching, encourage faithfulness to Jesus, let the peace of Jesus fill your hearts, do these, these things. And then he, he caps it off for 17. Whatever you do, <laughs> everything else, do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This means whatever you do, do so in obedience to Jesus, in accordance with Jesus, and in line with his, his name, his reputation, his, his personhood. It means do, do everything in dependence upon Jesus. It says giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. The New Living Translation in Colossians 3.17 says this, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I think one of the most deadly things that we can do in, in reading this list, and this is a beautiful list in Colossians 3. Right? We see similar lists in Ephesians of put off and put on. And we're captivated by this. Like, What would it, what would it really look like to be a part of a community that, that operates like this? That is wearing Christ and his character and his virtue. That would be awesome. And I want to be a part of that. And one of the most dangerous things we can do in the church is be captivated by this vision of compassion and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love and harmony and peace and neglect the very source of that. And not give thanks to the growth and the change and the character that we see in our lives because of what Jesus has done. That's what he says there. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Deadly, when we, we see or we experience growth in these ways and we take the credit for ourselves. 
we feel good about ourselves and we don't give thanks to, to Jesus and what he has done. This is his work. So what, what difference does Jesus make in your life? If, as Paul says, if he is your life, your vision for life, the means to attain that is Jesus, the source for that is change is Jesus, the, the one to whom the change points is Jesus. If, as followers of Jesus, our lives are in Jesus, we've been hidden in him, and part of being in Jesus means we're, we're putting off that old behavior, that old way of how we used to do things, that, that those ways that are inconsistent with Jesus, and we're putting on behavior that is consistent with Jesus. We're putting on new behavior, new life in Jesus. If we are to seek Jesus, we are to seek to concentrate our mind on the character of Jesus. We're, we're to seek to live our lives in the present, the life in the world that is, reflecting the world that is to come, reflecting the kingdom. If these things are true, if we're to seek the, the kingdom and reflect the kingdom of Jesus, if we're to set our sights on Jesus to put to death our self-centeredness and to grow into Christ, how do we do this? What, that, what does that practically look like? It could look like a variety of things. And I just wanted to share a couple ways that I, that I applied this, this passage in my life. Some practical ways. When I wake up and when I shower and when I go to sleep and when I have, when I have free time, it can be easy to just let your mind wander, can't it? I think in the shower, you, you start to reflect upon your day. That can be a nice reflection time. And there's a point, and there's good times for reflection. But I've found a helpful way for me to, to set my mind on Jesus and to have his peace rule in my heart and to have his word dwell in me richly is to have the Bible read to me. There's a, there's a helpful app called YouVersion. You can get on your phone, and there's a little play button, and you, you press play, and it reads to you. And there's so many translations. There's, there's one, the New Living Translation, almost kind of has like a theatrical effects. There's like some, even some sound effects. You listen to ESV, NIV, CSB. Some of them don't have the audio versions, but you can have the word of God just read to you. And, and again, the, the focus of, of just of being, of having the word of God read to you is not simply that by doing so, you feel better about how good of a Christian you are, but you are you are praying and asking that through this reading or hearing that you would think about Christ and that by thinking upon him, that his very character would be reflected in the way you live. Perspective. Another practice that helps me seek Jesus or help seeks the things that are above, or I, I, I try to read books that help me learn something about Jesus that I might not see or, or learn on my own. So right now I'm, I'm reading a book called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named uh, Dane Ortland, and, and the purpose of the book is to, to kind of expound and to explore what is the heart of Christ towards sinners and sufferers. So I'm reading this book, and he's, he's, he, he's teaching me things that, that I might not have seen on my own, and it's, it's very helpful. Another way that I, that I seek to do this is in, in my Bible, I have, I have the names of the people that gather regularly in our church, and I, I pray for them. And as I think about and pray for them, I, I, it's not just God, you know, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to pray for Nick, I pray for Christian, pray for Julia, pray for Phil. But I, I want to think about them and say, God, is there anything that you might want to, to share with me that might encourage them? And you might think, you know, thinking about people, how does that help me think about Christ? But it's 
How do I help encourage them and edify them as, as God has called me to do? How do I might help, you know, help them focus on dwelling in on Jesus and having the word of God dwell in them by faith? Does that make sense? It says, let the peace of Jesus rule in your hearts and let the word of Jesus dwell in you richly. Another practical way that I do this is, is uh, confession and prayer. So if I've, if I've come home if I've come home and I'm angry that something didn't go my way, or I'm, I'm sad that, that someone didn't respond to me the way I thought I should be responded to, instead of, instead of taking that, that sadness or those, those hurt feelings and, and share them with Stephanie, which are you know, my, my wife or a close friend, you, you might do that, I first try to take those before the Lord. And that really just helps change my perspective. And, and ask questions of God, what is, what is, going, what is at the heart of this? What was what really going on here in my heart? And I've found oftentimes there is idolatry, what Paul says there. There is some area in my life where my heart is set up, oh, and most often it's me. Daniel, you deserve to be uh, approved and respected and responded to and, and served, and everything is about you. And, and my anger responds to the fact that people aren't worshiping my goodness and my glory and my, my awesomeness. <laughs> I say, God, I am not awesome. I want to be worshiped, but I, you, I, I'm not worthy of being worshiped. And I've sought to live my life that way, and it's horrible. Help me, Father, to live a life where I am doing everything in the name of Jesus, where I'm living my life to please you, and I want to be aware of those things. Amen? So church, I pray that as Paul writes to the Colossians, Colossians 3, that we would see our life is hidden with Christ. That this identity, this citizenship, this place in God has already been accomplished. And it's out of this, out of this, that we put off former ways and we seek to put on Christ. And we do so not in a way to boast in how great we are, but we are doing so in the name of the Lord, in dependence on Jesus, giving thanks to Jesus. He gets the glory for us looking like him. He gets the glory as he changes us. And we call one another to this. We call one another to Christ. We call one another to demonstrate and live out of these virtues, this character of being kind and patient and humble and compassionate. And we pray, God, would you change us from the inside out that our hearts would align with these realities. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that we have now 2,000 years later, in English, your very word to us, the word about Christ. And we pray that as we study your word on Sundays, and as we think about your word throughout the week, as we personally invest ourselves in the scriptures, as we make time and study and memorization and meditation, that your word, the gospel, the scriptures, the message of Christ would dwell in our hearts. That, that the peace of God would rule in us, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Well, we've made the joke and think about the image of we want to be 
well-fed, fat, soulful Christians who dwell and feast richly on the word of Christ. It is so rich. And we pray that that would dwell in us richly, that we would be instruments of, of encouragement and edification and correction and growth in grace and in Jesus as we teach and admonish one another. We pray that the songs that we sing on Sundays would, would by your grace, stick into our heads if they are worthy and pleasing to you. That we would think about them, that it would, that would cause our, our minds and our, and our thoughts to be fixated on Jesus, that you would set our sights on him and what he has done and how he has called us to live in the world that is. Father, we pray that our church and, and the individual members who are a part of it would be reflections of the kingdom that is coming, that would be reflections of the new life that is in heaven in the way that we are meek and humble and compassionate. Father, would you do this? We want to become more like Jesus. We want people to get a picture of what Jesus is like because and by the way that we treat them and respond and, and love them. We thank you for the work that you've done in this church, how you, by your grace, are progressively conforming us and transforming us to be more like Jesus. You have used this church and the members of it to edify and to encourage each other. I pray that, that you would bless this, that this would grow and continue, that we would grow together, that, that we would put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Father, help us to be thankful to realize that you, you deserve all the glory and the honor and we are dependent upon you. So we do this in the name of our Lord Jesus and we give thanks to Jesus. We give thanks to the Father through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.